the universities, where they control the real estate, essentially have a monopoly. I mean, as soon as a right of passage to move into your hall of residence, almost every student <laughs> ubiquitously moves into yeah. a student halls. It's therefore not unrealistic to think that the universities could extrapolate that relationship into the second year and above. And that's the intention. Hello and welcome to Represented by Secret Leaders Podcast. If this is your first time listening, then let me give you a little quick lowdown. We're here to give more representation to black founders creating scalable businesses as currently just 0.5% of all funding goes to black funded businesses in Europe. Now throughout this series, you'll hear one pitch per week and get the inside track on how investors grill entrepreneurs on their business, how they respond and whether they want to proceed and consider investing. If you're an entrepreneur looking to apply or you're an investor looking to consider investing in underrepresented founders, please sign up at secretleaders.com forward slash represented. On to today's show then, where we've got investors Nick Jenkins, who's the founder of Moonpig and a prolific angel investor, also a former dragon on Dragon's Den. Andrew Scott, who is the founder and partner at venture capital firm 7% Ventures and Yvonne Bajela, a partner at Impact X Capital. They are here to hear from today's guest, Leon from Live In Space. So without further ado, Leon, how do we live in space? Hi all, thank you very much for having me. Uh, my name is Leon Ipiemi and I'm the CEO of Space. Uh, Space is a real estate oriented software business supporting higher education and public sector organizations in delivering transformative housing services. Uh, our cornerstone product is one called Atlas. It's a property rental marketplace designed to connect universities and local governments with students and tenants with landlords across the real estate spectrum ranging from everyday Airbnb-style private landlords to larger corporate institutional developers. Atlas supports the entirety of the tenancy process, which amongst other things includes property search, be it desktop and mobile, guarantor verification, contract signing for multiple contract types, reflecting different occupancy arrangements and recurring payments for the duration of the agreement. The early beginnings of space started at my time in university. I was a student ambassador, a humble student ambassador, and for the entirety of my second year, my job was to take students from property to property. I noticed that there were huge consistencies in the issues that students were facing, particularly from those coming from abroad to the UK and having to lodge in very expensive temporary accommodation whilst they were looking for a more permanent place to stay. In my third year, I got put on the other side of the lessons fence and became a keyholder for landlords. There I noticed a similar number of issues, uh, particularly with the agency model where the university was charging private landlords anywhere between 12 to 20% of rental income for what was a basic property management service. And so when I graduated, I decided to do something about it. I began by working uh, at Deutsche Bank. I then moved into private wealth at Barclays and then into private equity at Rothschild, where two of my clients funded the business. We led a 280,000 pound round and used that capital to accrue a world-class team and product, which we launched in uh, November, 2017. At the time, we felt we had built the best product in the market, but you know, as with startups go, although that was the case, we did face some challenges, particularly with the cost of acquiring students at that time. And so in September 2018, at which time we had the good fortune of joining the Techstars program, we decided to make a pivot and begin licensing the platform to public sector groups, universities, and other groups who have better recurring access to those end users. The sponsors of the program were Colliers and they had just acquired Harrison Street. 
which is the second largest provider of student accommodation globally. Uh, and we were able to use some of the data that they had accrued uh, over their lifetime to validate some of our assumptions about the pivot. In January 2019, we were then able to acquire the University of London and all of its constituent schools, consisting of 32 universities. Some of the more notable names are King's College, London School of Economics. Collectively, these schools make up around 25% of the total number of institutions in the country, and those institutions represent about 12.5% of the total number of students in the country. So by creating an aggregative tool that allows universities to collect properties and support properties across the real estate spectrum in one place and make those available to their students, they're able to enhance the student experience, but also make revenue by facilitating transactions between those students and those landlords. We make our revenue by taking a percentage of the revenue that the universities make on that basis. We spent the last 18 months working with the University of London. And we launched our the landlord side of the marketplace on Thursday, and we'll be launching uh, the student side of that marketplace on the 11th of August. Uh, and we have demonstrations booked with Durham and Imperial this month. Um, so now seems like an opportune time to start growing, leveraging our relationships built out of the Techstars program while we're in Canada. We were also able to bring um, a gentleman called Alan Harrison, who was the ex-provost for um, Queen's University, um, very reputable one, onto our board of uh, advisors as well. And we're looking forward to growing over the next uh, couple of months. And so without further ado, I guess on that basis, we'll welcome any questions that you might have. Okay, so Yvonne, first question, over to you, please. Thank you, Leon, for, for that pitch. Um, so my question is around, you know, great news that you've managed to support the University of London, obviously huge fight win, 25% of the London student market. What does that translate to in revenues? And what's next in terms of acquiring other universities? The reason I don't want to give specifics about project projections is because ultimately it's the university's job to determine what the um, pricing on the, on the platforms that they launch might be. But we expect this to be on the university side, anywhere between 2.5% and 3.5% for those transactions. The University of London represents about 250,000 students. Of those 250,000 students, 63% live off campus. And the remainder, so this would be the, what's the 37, will either live on campus or at home. If we sort of translate that into a sort of a market opportunity and assume that in the first year, we will take 25% of the market, we're looking at about half a million in revenue for, for space for the first year. And that's just on um, the basic transactional fees. We do have ancillary revenue that we take as well. And that's irrespective of the number of students. Sir. And that's irrespective of the number of students, correct. And what's your relationship with the University of London? Is it done on a per school basis or is it done at the, the group level? It's done for the group, but what we expect is that the schools will, the individual schools that constitute the group will want some individual levels of customization. And so there are other future opportunities for um, to develop revenue, even within on this deal. Um, but I don't want to talk too soon about what those those opportunities might be. And are the universities currently generating revenue from students that are getting accommodation that is not part of the university campus? N not for the off-campus market, no. They've, okay, they've, so this is a new stream of revenue for them. And you mentioned that, you know, your earlier version of the product, um, that you, the cap was very high. So I'm guessing that's lower because, you know, it's coming through the actual university now as opposed to before where you're going down directly to students, right? Okay. 
Absolutely. So we we don't pay any of the marketing costs. All the marketing costs are borne by the university itself. Um, we have a PR campaign going live next week, and that is all being paid for by the university, along with some of our investors like Techstars. Um, I actually just wanted to add on to sort of, I, I guess the question is sort of why hasn't the university chosen to do something like this on their own? And if, if housing is such a big income generator for them, why haven't they gone on to build more rooms? And there are many restrictions to universities doing that. I mean, if we take London, for example, it's a very dense market. There isn't enough, a lot of space to build real estate. And it usually takes anywhere between 10 to 15 years to build a campus to accommodate all of a, a student's, uh, a university's student population. Given that the student population is growing at 3% per annum, even if the university could commit to building enough campus space to solve today's need, by the time it gets to the point at which the building is built, the problem would have perpetuated itself. And so the only solution that the universities realize is viable long-term when looking at the looking at monetizing the off-campus market is by having a, a platform like this to fill in the deficit. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And and just to get an, an understanding of, of the vision for the company, so you mentioned that, you know, based on your estimations, you could potentially generate half a million in revenue with the 25% of the student population that you currently have. If you were to get, you know, the entire UK population, that would translate to, say, £2 million in revenue. Talk to me about the vision and how, how you plan to, to grow revenues. Um, and in terms of the actual um, student market, where do you go next? Like, are there other opportunities in other so there are there are quite a few there are quite a few opportunities i mean the uk market is probably one of the more prestigious higher education markets globally but it's actually relatively small the higher education market in the us is 22 times the size so and well you know i hate to say it but they have harvard so <laughs> it also is quite prestigious in that sense also in boston for example i think they have in excess of 100 universities there alone so in terms of expanding on our existing market with the existing set of products we want to go to a very other you know other mature higher education markets in australia and in the us we'll probably start with english speaking countries because then you can have a sales base here that can you know that they can uh, sell out to those countries without having to necessarily set um, local offices up. Um, in terms of the blue sky, we also want to sell the same product to other public sector groups who share the same needs. Local governments, councils in this country um, have obligations to house uh, their constituents, um, Most of it, some of whom will be on low income, and there's many in undated processes to support them in doing that today. Now that we have this infrastructure in place, I guess they would probably be the next client group that we could sell them into with a few tweaks, of course. Outside of that, we then want to um, look at selling other products. Most of them we hope to be data-oriented. Part of our agreement with all the universities is that we will own the data, and I think that will set a good precedent or foundation on which we can go and look at, create other sort of machine learning tools and so on to future-proof some of what we're looking to do in the future. Interesting. I don't know much about the U.S. Um, education market and the accommodation system over there, but would the model as it is today be applicable to the U.S. market? It would be. Um, there are some, I think, operational challenges that you have to look to overcome. In the U.S., the property laws are based on a state-by-state basis. So one thing, one of the benefits of launching in the U.K. is the tenancy laws are consistent across every city you go to. And unlike Airbnb, who only accommodates tenancies that are short in three months and therefore doesn't need a tenancy contract. 
with space, you have to have formal tenancy contracts in the app supported because all of the tenancies we take are three months or above in, in line with sort of the academic year. If that's going to be the case, it will mean that we'll have to change the tenancy contract and therefore the user journey for every state in which we want to launch in the US. So if we launch in New York, the user journey will be very different from what it will be in, New, I don't know, let's say California. And that's the, one of the reasons why no one has gone on to create an end-to-end property rental software tool globally. I mean, it's just so difficult. It's part of why you know we'll need capital to expand. The company is in a position now where it doesn't necessarily need outside investment to survive. And, you know, if we wanted to maintain this as a lifestyle business in the UK, great. But if we're looking to have global ambitions, global vision, we'll need that capital to look at legal counsel in helping us adjust the product for local context in the States in particular, where they have very, very uh, complex federal laws um, for housing in every different state. I was interested to hear, Leon, what, what you just said. And first of all, congratulations for, for, for getting where you have I've just been playing with the site while you've been talking as well. Uh, having looked at the deck, and uh, you know, it's always always a tough decision to pivot a company, but um, you've you've made it through and, and, and carried on. So well done. Yeah. So the four hundred k, and that's for international expansion. So if, if you if you were to have a check today, when do you launch? When do you get your first customer in the US? Your first university signed up. Okay. So. If you ask when we get our first customer in the UK, it'd be very different from the US. The sales cycle for these groups is roughly around six to eight months. We did it quite quickly with URL. It was seven months. In the UK, that would be quickened just because we have Mark Allen on our board. Mark Allen actually sits on the board of the University of London and on yeah. four other schools around the UK. So getting it out in the UK is, 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 I think, an easier job. We would be going into North America afresh, albeit that, yes, we do have some relationships, but not with the same presence we have here. So I would say it would probably take, thinking realistically, 12 months. And we would leverage our existing um, investor base to do that. Colliers is an existing investor. And they, um, very much like UPP in the UK, build first-year halls of residence for universities in North America they have done for many schools, they did for Harvard. Harvard has been a client of theirs for 20 years. So it's possible, but it will take a slightly longer, 12 months, I would assume. So do you, do you have an internal tech team at the moment? We, we outsource all of our development. Um, the developer we use has a shareholding in space so that they're completely vested in our success. I, I know for investors, um, having an outsourced developer team does pose a risk, but for a, a company at our stage, which is, um, hasn't been cash rich for some time. It's been the best way to manage cash flow, but also have the expertise that we need. They've been great till, till, till date, but we'll need to, to grow once we raise more capital. Okay, so Nick, have you got any extra questions for Leon? Yeah, I just wanted to understand a bit, <clears throat> a bit more about the value of the transactions that are likely to go through the website. So of the, I mean, look, it looks as though if, 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 if say, a typical student is paying £6,000 a year, is, would that be a good average figure, £6,000 a year for accommodation? The average rent, um, according to HESA, the Higher Education Survey Group, is £6,600 across the country. And in London, it's in excess of £8,000. So for the University of London Group, we've actually been conservative with our forecasts. But I guess let's just take the average figure for the country is 6600 So looking at, at around about a nine, £9 billion a year being spent on off, uh, off-campus accommodation. Correct. So uh, how, many of the, how much of that would you expect to go, would, would to, to go through the system? I don't think it would be unrealistic for us to assume that 
the universities could drive a monopoly for off-campus markets. I can't give you a specific. Okay, but I mean, for example, if I'm a, I'm a student, I go into my second year, I need to find accommodation, and I go onto the website, I find a flat, and I remain in that flat for the next uh, two for the remaining two years of my of my university career. What is the transaction? Is the transaction the whole of the cost of my rent over those two years? In which case, how is that measured? I and mean, how does the system know? How does the system know that I have? One concluded an agreement with that particular apartment building um, or, yeah. or property owner, and also that I have stayed there and I'm continuing to pay rent. So how is that? How is the transaction defined? Well, because the the transaction is taken through the platform. So what happens is the the, the student will go. The land. Let's start with the landlord. So the landlord will actually go on set the terms on which they want to list. This could include by setting a minimum tenancy length if they don't want students for less than six months or and the types of contracts that they want disseminated through the platform. All the contracts are drafted by the university. The landlords cannot use their own contracts, but the landlord does have the flexibility to input their own sort of free text fields into the contract just for like additional kind of a, a, a terms. Then the student comes on, finds a property, makes a booking, the landlord agrees, and their contract is distributed to the student, the landlord, and the guarantor of the student has chosen to use one. And at this point, the student has two options once the contract's signed. Um, the student can either pay the rent up front, in which case we get our the entire fee for the entire academic year, for the entire period of the period of tenancy, whether that's you know, 12 months or 24 months, into our accounts up front. The platform, our platform splits the money between UOL uh, or the university in this case, uh, in, in the wider case, space and the landlord straight away. So we're not invoicing anyone for these fees. The second option is that the student pays on a month-by-month basis. They pay a certain amount up front, and the amount they pay up front is determined by the criteria the landlord sets. So if the landlord says, okay, you're moving into a property uh, for the academic year, September 2020 to 2021, and you're moving in September, but you're making the booking in June, the landlord can take three months of that rent up front. At the time, again, we take our fee from the uh, uh, three months rental payment paid up front and then in september when students move in nothing is charged up until month four okay but i mean you answered my question very early on which is actually that the payment is going through your site correct yeah okay so that so that defines the transaction as in the transaction is the money comes through you so i can okay so i can definitely see how you how you get your slice uh, from that what is the incentive for either both for the student and the landlord uh to choose accommodation through through, through, through the site. I guess for the student, it's, it's quite simple. It's quality control. If you look at the first year, if you look at the first year market, this, the universities where they control the real estate essentially have a monopoly. I mean, as soon as a right of passage to move into your hall of residence, yeah. and almost every student <laughs> ubiquitously moves into yeah. a student halls. It's therefore not unrealistic to think that the universities could extrapolate that relationship into the second year and above, and that's the intention. And this is providing them the tools to do so. So the university is essentially saying to the students, you went through us, forget everybody else, and we'll protect you. Right now, what's happening is that the students, the universities are quality controlling, so to speak, retrospectively. So the students are going out into the wilderness, finding their properties, getting burned, and then coming back to the university to reconcile. You talked about the £500,000 from the... 10% 10% of students, uh, 12%. So the deal you have at the moment represents 12% of students, doesn't it? And, and that, that number of half a million seems low in the sense that if, if, you, if you extrapolated this across all students, it would be about mm. 60 million. 
But then again, this is based on our forecast, which is extremely conservative. So what we've done is that you, you take that 12.5% of students, we say that 60, we've assumed based on, on, on the forecast is 63% of those students live off campus. Yeah. And then of those 63% which live off campus, we've only assumed 20 or so percent will actually book through the platform. So we're saying that of our total market of this, from this deal, total market opportunity that are rising out of this deal, we'll only realize a fifth of it. And if we do that, then we'll make what we've said, um, which is extremely conservative. Um, of course, if we realize 100% of it, that's great. I mean, <laughs> but I, I don't want to put unrealistic figures forward um, first. Yeah, that seems relatively conservative. Okay, yeah, so what do you think, Yvonne? I like it. I mean, a few years ago, I actually spent some time looking in the space. I looked at a few competitors and similar to what he said in terms of, you know, why he had to pivot, the CAC was a major issue and actually getting penetration within the student market, again, was an issue. So I think he's actually cracked a more sustainable approach. Um, it's, it's still very early and we're yet to see whether, you know, students will actually book onto the platform. He's essentially relying on the institutions in order to drive that traffic, but it's in their interest to do so. Um, so, yeah, no, I think it's interesting and one that I would definitely like to have a further look at. He does seem very sharp um, in terms of how he's understood, understood the opportunity in the market. So what do you think, Nick? His presentation in person was a hell of a lot better than the, than the pitch because the, from the pitch, I couldn't really, didn't really explain where the money was. Uh, but actually, he, he explained very, very lucidly where the, where, where the money is. And I think he's been quite conservative. What I love about it is that there's a relatively small number of institutions to sell to. And once you've got the big institutions on board, the rest of them probably kind of follow. It isn't in any of their interests to, to develop this functionality themselves because it, ju it just isn't. It, 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 it doesn't make sense for them each to have to try to develop their own bit of software to do this. I, I, guess, the, I guess the one issue would be if this model works and then someone, so someone decides to offer a similar platform to them later on and says, actually, look, I can do this, but I can, I'll only take a 5% slice of, uh, of, your, of it. Then the question then would be, what is it to stop the institutions moving to nudging them off the platform? Who owns? I suppose that's, that's the contractual thing. But I, I, th I liked it. I thought it was very good. He's very sharp, um, very smart. Uh, but but I, I love the fact that it's a very small focus group of people who probably all know each other uh, to speak to. So the selling side is quite straightforward. So I guess uh, he's very passionate about the space, which which is always great to see, right? And you can see that, you know, he started the I think in, actually in the deck or in, on the website it says it mentions 2013 so he's obviously been thinking about it for a long time and then he he eventually raised the money and then he's pivoted and so you know that shows sort of staying power um, which is always to be applauded I guess there are some questions I didn't ask which I, I, I would ask him which is you know there are existing SaaS platforms out there that manage accommodation for universities for student accommodation that the uh, universities own you know what's to stop one of those existing incumbents just offering starting to do this as a feature, starting to offer third-party accommodation um, and sell that into the relationships they already have with the universities for, for the SaaS management, for the, you know, for the property management platforms have there. So I think if this starts to work, he's going to be careful that, that one of those competing companies doesn't turn around and go, hang on a minute, we, we can do this and we've already got, we've already sold, we've already got an existing relationship with all these universities. We can just start doing this for, for, for non-university-owned pr premises. A few questions about, you know, the 400K was viewed as expansion. I just wonder whether this is, in which case, this is the right time to raise it. I mean, it sounds like he's just on the cusp of actually launching and getting to market and getting some revenue in. So, you know, when he's focused now on 
actually getting the UK locked down? You know, is that now the time to be raising 400k to expand into the US? And then I think, I guess, lastly, it feels possibly more to us just from a 7% point of view that it's it's more a tech-enabled business rather than a tech business, rather than a traditional tech startup. And that perhaps goes, you know, is, is echoed by by the decisions around not building a an internal tech team. That would be a, a, a sort of red flag for us because um, we, we don't invest in teams that don't have internal tech teams. Okay, so we're going to start off with feedback first from Yvonne. Yeah, thank you, Liam, once again for, for that great pitch. Um, I think that, you know, it's a really, really interesting product that you developed. This is a market that I, I looked at a few years ago with a number of players that were more focused on the direct-to-student space. And so the customer acquisition cost was obviously very high, as you've mentioned. I think what you've done is managed to crack a more sustainable approach. Um, and it's great to hear the traction you've had to date. I still think it's it's relatively early for for us. I think that, you know, we're yet to see whether students will actually book on the platform and essentially relying on the institutions to, to drive that. Um, but obviously it's in their interest to do so. Um, I would definitely like to continue the conversation and have another chat with you to dig a bit deeper into this. Sounds good. Great. Over to you, Andrew. Yeah, so just, you know, well done again for, for, for getting to where you have. Um, I'm an ex-founder myself. I know how tough it is. And you, you've gone through a pivot and you've clearly got great passion for the space and are determined to to crack this nut so that you know that's that's to be applauded i think it's difficult for us where we focus on you know either deep tech or what we call transformative businesses and you're doing something which is a good change in the market but i'm not sure how fundamentally transformational um, it is versus some of the, the other types of businesses we we would invest in so that's more really a comment about us and our investment thesis than it is about your business i think you should make a bit of advice would be make a decision about the the, the tech team and whether to bring them in house or not, I think that's going to be a bit of a learning curve. But uh, for us, that would be a red flag. Um, so we don't invest in businesses that don't have their own, you know, aren't building tech in house. Probably, um, probably a pass for us. But um, I can see the market opportunity, and I, I wish you every bit of luck. Thank you, Andrew. Okay, Nick. Last but not least, uh, the bit the bit I like about it is the fact that you've you've uh, you found a niche where you only need to sell into a relatively small number of institutions. They all know each other and they all talk. Um, so that, that's the bit I really like about it. Uh, I guess the bit I'm worried about is the price pressure. Once this works and everyone's doing it and it's on the platform, is how you will deal with the price pressure or the, 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 the pressure uh, for the, the institutions to say, well, OK, could anybody else offer this functionality to us? And that, that's only a problem that will hit you when you're successful. So I'd love to understand more about that, but that's perhaps the conversation I'd like to have with you. But um, the aspect that I like about it is, is you've identified a very small group of people that you need to sell into. And I think, and therefore, there's a pretty, pretty good chance that you will get quite a large penetration. I also, by the way, like investing in businesses that have felt the cold, hard slap of reality. And, and you, having been through a pivot, um, you felt that. And it just makes everyone a bit more realistic. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. OK, Leon, just us now, mate. You're safe. How did you find that? Uh, I thought it was good. You know, I, I enjoy doing these types of things. And, uh, you know, all fair feedback. I think some will be, you know, dependent on personal preference. You know, I have heard from some investors that would actually say having an outsourced team in the first instance makes complete sense, you know, and others and others not. So take all the comments with a pinch of salt. I think it, but they're all fair, all fair in summary. 
Now, we also have um, an investor list, so we will share your deck with a wider investor list as well. And to anyone listening to this episode today and thinking, this guy sounds super sharp, what an interesting space, and definitely want to know more myself, uh, where can they reach you? Okay, cool. So if you want to reach out to space and you're considering investing, please reach us at invest at liveinspace.com. That is spelled L-I-V-E-I-N-S-P-C-E.com. Uh, and either myself or a member of a team will reach back out to you. Uh, if you want to find us on social media, um, reach us at Live in Space, L-I-V-E-I-N-S-P-C-E, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Leon, thank you so much for your time, mate. Really appreciate it. Sounds good. Thank you all. If you're an investor interested to learn more about the great applications we're getting from black-founded companies and want access to their funding decks and even introductions, or you're an entrepreneur looking to apply to be on the show to be considered by our investment committee, either way, please go to secretleaders.com forward slash represented and follow the links there. Big thanks to our producer, Rich Martel, editor Harry Morton of Lower Street Media and illustrator Christina Katz for helping put this show together. We'll see you on the next episode and remember to help us spread the word and make sure we get more black founders represented. See you next week.